You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Oh, Lord, what we need is perseverance in our lives. We need endurance. We need to set our eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. And Lord, this day and always, that we would not grow weary or faint-hearted or regard lightly your discipline or that a root of bitterness might take hold of us, producing bad fruit in our lives, but that we might go on and press on toward the goal that is set before us, running the race that you have for us to run. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thanking you. Okay. Uh, well, we didn't get quite finished with chapter 12, and unfortunately I stopped just as we were getting to the good news because we talked about running the race that is set before us, uh, looking really at the first two verses of chapter 12, and I want to finish that up as we go into the rest of chapter 12. So let me read that for us again. Therefore, since we are surrounded, and the therefore is pointing back to Hebrews 11, all of the men and women that the author puts forward as a model of faith. And remember, it's not looking to them as much as it is looking to Jesus and how their faith withstood the fire in their own lives, that their lives are testimony, is a testimony of faithfulness, faithfulness, which simply means believing God at his word. So Abraham was told, you'll be the father of many nations, your offspring will be so numerous, you won't be able to count them. And then God said, I want you to take your son, your only son, and sacrifice him. And the author of Hebrews commenting on that said that Abraham believed that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. So I, Abraham acting in faith, doing what God told him to do, knew the promise of God that he would have offspring and that he'd have descendants. And so he acted in faith. Excuse me, the same is true of Moses and of Joshua and of Rahab and others. Uh, and, and so that's, the, that's really what faith is, is believing God at his word, trusting, relying, and depending upon him for our everything. And so therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Now the image that is being conjured up here uh, by the author of Hebrews is one of, in the first instance, he talks about being a military man or woman, standing firm, letting nothing move you, but always giving yourselves wholly over to the work of the Lord, but also that of an athlete who lay aside every weight, which actually literally means gets rid of the flab, uh, gives their life wholly over to training for the marathon, this race that is set before us. And I got all the way up to talking about the manner in which we persevere as Christians. What we notice is that the race that the author talks about is not the 100-meter sprint. We're not competing against any other person. Do you notice that? 
but it says that let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That a cor- our court, my course, your course, they're different, aren't they? And in fact, the Greek word that is used here to talk about the race is the same Greek word from which we get the English word agony. Now look, some of y'all know this is a terrible story, but I'm going to tell it anyway because it's on me. I had a friend who worked in the White House for George W. Bush, and George W. Bush would go jogging every once in a while, and, uh, and and my buddy said, hey, we get to invite people. Do you want to go run with the president? And of course, I had in my mind a Bill Clinton run, like to the McDonald's, and we'd have a little egg McMuffin, and then we'd sort of jump. I was really impressed because President Bush, there was a small group of us and Secret Service guys, and we weren't going at a tremendous pace, but he would actually work the crowd. He'd run up and kind of talk to somebody, and then he'd move over and slow down. And, and when he got to me, here's my chance, leader of the free world. And the president asks, Now, you run much? And I said, Mr. President, if you run, you're only going to die tired. That was was it. (laughs) And he said, well, that's one way to look at it. And off he went to the the next person. If you've ever done any sort of long-distance running, even if it's the mile in junior high, all of us who have done any sort of... Do you get to the point where you're just like, I give up? This is crazy. And of course, the race that the Olympians would think of and and the Hebrews' day is the great race to Marathon. You remember, this is the 5th century B.C. where Pheidippides runs from Marathon back to Athens, 26 miles. And what does he yell when he gets to Athens? This is some cultural knowledge for you. What is the Greek word he used? It's the Greek word for victory. Nike. Nike. He yelled, Nike. And so that's where you get Nike tennis shoes. Anyway, um, and then Thedipides died, right? So let that be a warning to you if you like to run marathons. Uh, He made it all the way and yelled victory and died. So that's the race that is set before, that's the image that is being conjured up for us, and this race is agony. I mean, there there are times in the race where you just want to give up. I don't want to do this anymore. It's not worth it. There's still so much farther to go. I'm exhausted. And because it's my own race, I'm not racing against anyone. Sometimes that's even worse, isn't it? I'm running by myself. And it's best if I just give up. And so, this is not... uh, I'm now trying to read my handwriting... There is not one of our steps that Jesus himself hasn't taken. So when we're running with agony this race, we read, Consider him, in verse 3, who endured such, from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Jesus has run his race. We're going to get to that in a minute. But there's, he, he's able to, to see the race that we're running and know exactly how we feel. And this race requires endurance. And of course, what we need to have our eyes upon is a fixed point, who is Jesus Christ? 
the authorized version, the King James says it better in verse 2, that we look to the founder and finisher of our faith. He finished the race for us. But it asks the question, I think, why are we in the race? Why are we in this race? Jesus has brought us into it, and he will bring us out of it. Have you ever thought about that? That the hard race that we're running is not the product of just life, which is hard enough, but the race that we're running is the course that God himself has set before us. You wouldn't be on the course of life that you're in right now if it wasn't for God's intervention. And if he brought you into it, he, was, he is faithful to bring you unto completion. He who began a good work within you will bring you to perfection, as Paul said. And so we run with confidence, not in our own ability, but knowing that there's one who has finished the race for us. Because Christian perseverance is really God's perseverance with us. And that's what the Christian life is about. And it's not as if Jesus is our, you know, encouraging person holding the sign on the side of the marathon saying you can do it and handing out orange wedges and cups of water uh, along the way. I always wonder, um, you know, these, these marathons like the one in Nashville that is sponsored by Krispy Kreme. And, and the thing is like after you run your marathon, you can have as much Krispy Kreme as you want. Or the one uh, in... Um, in Williamsburg is the Anheuser-Busch one, and you can drink all the beer you want after you've run 26 miles. Right? It's, it's really appealing, isn't it? Um, Jesus is not uh, rooting you on from the side. He's already run the race for you, and indeed, I would go so far as to say that there are times in your life where he is carrying you. And so when you fall and you think, I can't go on, he goes on in your behalf. Not leaving you in the dust, but actually picking you up and running with you. Because Christian perseverance is really God's perseverance with us. And that's the great irony about the Christian life, is that where we're, really, we're willing to give up and to say, this is too hard. Remember, resisting temptation. Who is it that resists the most? Who is it that feels the intensity of the temptation? The person who doesn't give in. You know, us, if we get winded, we're just like, well, yeah, that's it. I'm going to walk the rest of the way. I'm going to quit. Where Jesus actually never quits, that he suffers the agony on a sustained level the whole way and, in fact, never gives up on us and even in the midst of that, picks us up and runs with us. And then finally, the author tells us what the means of perseverance are. What two things did Jesus endure? In verse 1 we see, well, uh, rather, in, um, in verse 2, we see that he first endured what? The cross. That's the first thing that he endured. And then secondly, in verse 3, we see that he endured hostility. Those are the two things that Jesus endured endured at a rather sustained and intense level uh, in his life. And those are the things that Jesus experienced agony over. 
Now, the thing that we see about Jesus and that we ought to see in our own lives is that trials make perseverance. Do you realize that? That it's the trial that makes perseverance. It's not the absence of trials that allows you to persevere. It's not that we are... It's not that we survive despite the trials, but that God uses them to create perseverance in us. So in my own life, Lauren will often remark, she said, it's amazing how you're just a normal functioning human being and yet come from the same gene pool as your family. (laughs) And she has a point. Um... And not just that, she'll say, I mean, think about your own experience. Your parents divorced, I'm going to pretend like I'm talking about myself here, but not here. Your parents divorced when you were a little boy. When you were in the fourth grade, you were going home by yourself, and you were getting dinner ready for your mom and your brothers. In one instance, you lived in a two-bedroom apartment where all you had was a sort of largest closet to call your own. And then you eventually, uh, your mother got remarried and that was sort of a traumatic event. No one in the family is uh, is a Christian and uh, I mean, I could just keep going uh, to tell my life story, but I won't. But all that to say, you know, Lauren will often sit back and say, you know, it's amazing that you went through all that and turned out the way that you did. But if you read Hebrews and you understand Jesus, I didn't come through those things in spite of them. I didn't come through unscathed like I somehow slipped the snare or the trap. I am who I am because God used them. The trials made me who I am. And so rather than saying, I'm going to try to avoid those things, which is how we're, gonna, we're about to get into chapter 12, actually to understand that that's how God creates perseverance in our own lives. And, it's, and, and this is, uh, was made, probably to use another example, um, that I think is loud and clear. And we, we get this wrong even as Christians. So my mother's second husband uh, was a dear man, is a dear man, uh, and uh, he was not a believer, but he, in the course of two weeks, he went away to Curcio, which is a, a nice ministry that, that we have uh, in our denomination. He went away on Curcio, and he became a Christian on that weekend. The next week, he was diagnosed with cancer and was told he would need surgery immediately. And when he was having surgery, his internal bleeding was so bad that they just had to sew him up and say, we've got to figure out a different way to try to get rid of your cancer. And so my mother is conveying all of this to me, and you know what my first thought was? His faith will be dashed against the rocks. It's over. He's going to ask, how could God allow something like this to happen to me? Especially when I just gave my life to him. And then I called the hospital. She put him on the phone. And through tears, he simply said, God has brought me through this. I have no doubt that God has brought me through this. Why? Because he was a Christian for a week and understood what Hebrews is saying. That the trials create the perseverance. 
that though I die, yet shall I see God. And so we keep on. And if you want to see good Bible examples of this, you can go to Psalm 121 and Isaiah 43. And so that brings us to Hebrews uh, 3 verses, um, Hebrews 12 verses, verses 3 through 17. So I'm going to read that as quickly as I can. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subjects to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths of your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness with which, with which, out, with which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it may become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so keeping in mind what we just said about the first part of chapter 12 and the introduction, when pressure does come, here in chapter 12 we see that there are two responses. Uh, actually, there are three responses. The first, in verse 3, is to grow weary or faint-hearted. And we've already talked about that, the idea of running the race and getting to the place where you're just so exhausted that you think, forget it, I'm done, I can't go on. I mean, we've all been there. Certainly we've all been there. Where you get to the place in your life where you actually don't know what it looks like to take the next step. I can't do it. And so this is one of the things that we, one of the ways in which we can respond to the pressures and the trials and temptations that Hebrews is talking about and to simply grow weary and drop out of the race. The second response that we can have is in verse 5. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. And the root word here is hard-heartedness. Hard-heartedness. Which are, Hebrews has already talked a whole lot about, 3 and 4 being really maybe the two most important chapters in the entirety of the letter. Uh, but the hard-heartedness that creeps on when trials and pressures come, and I often see this in cases of bereavement. Have you ever encountered somebody who is suffering the loss of a loved one and you're sort of shocked by how they're responding? That they're numb to it? 
that they have an almost zombie-like response to it, that they, they've allowed their hearts to get hardened to the point that grief and anything else that tries to get in simply bounces off. Uh, that's what uh, the author of Hebrews is warning against here. And then thirdly, uh, in verse 15, the root of bitterness. The root of bitterness. And this, of course, is uh, the grumbling, uh, the allowing something that may be simply innocuous at first to take deep root in your heart because the root of bitterness does what? It produces bitter fruit. And we've encountered people like this who are just miserable to be around. They're just sour, miserable people. And they can't help themselves. Uh, it may be that they say, well, I, I, I wish I wasn't like this, but this is just the way that I am. And I would bet the ranch that in that situation, as in the other two, that if they're experiencing the root of bitterness and they're producing bitter fruit in their life, it's the result of going through trial and temptation, and that's how they responded to it. To simply be bitter. Now, I think that this also comes about, this hardening of the heart, this growing weary in this root of bitterness, because we have a misunderstanding about what the Christian life is about. Oftentimes, the Christian life is painted as simply sunshine and lollipops, that if you become a believer, everything's great. You'll never suffer anymore. Uh, you'll... you'll Things will be fine, and even when things go bad, you simply take them to the Lord in prayer, and he fixes them. Rather than what the author of Hebrews is saying to the Hebrew Christians is that you have a misunderstanding of what the Christian life is supposed to look like. Because the normal Christian life looks like what? Trial, temptation, an agonizing race. And if you've never read this book, you, you can't read it enough, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. This edition, it says something like over one million copies sold. Uh, it's a really great book. And, and Packer speaks to this here in his, in his book. Now put like that in general terms, these great assurances are scriptural and true. Praise God they are. This thing about the Christian life being God for us. But it is possible so to stress them and so to play down the rougher side of the Christian life, the daily chastening, the endless war with sin and Satan, the periodic walk in darkness, as to give the impression that normal Christian living is a perfect bed of roses, a state of affairs in which everything in the garden is lovely all the time and problems no longer exist, or if they come, they have only to be taken to the throne of grace and they will melt away at once. This is to su suggest that the world, the flesh, and the devil will give us no serious trouble once we are Christians. Nor will our circumstances and personal relationships ever be a problem to us. Nor will we ever be a problem to ourselves. Such, such suggestions are mischievous, however, because they are false. And he continues... On this basis, people are converted. They experience the new birth and they advance into their new life, joyfully certain that they have left all the old headaches and heartaches behind them. And then they find that it is not like that at all. 
long-standing problems of temperament, of personal relationships, of felt wants, of nagging temptations are still there, sometimes indeed intensified. God does not make their circumstances notably easier, rather the reverse. Dissatisfaction recurs over wife or husband or parents or in-laws or children or colleagues or neighbors. Temptations and bad habits which have their conversion experience seem to have been banished for good reappear. As the first great waves of joy rolled over them during the opening weeks of their Christian experience, they had really felt that all problems had solved themselves, but now they see that it was not so and that the trouble-free life which they were promised has not materialized. Things which got them down before they were Christians are threatening to get them down again. What are they to think now? There is nothing unnatural, therefore, in an increase of temptations, conflicts and pressures as the Christian goes on with God. Indeed, something would be wrong if it did not happen. But the Christian who has been told that the normal Christian life is unshadowed and trouble-free can only conclude, as experiences of inadequacy and imperfections pile in upon him, that he must have lapsed from the normal. Something's gone wrong, he will say. It isn't working anymore. And his question will be, how can it be made to work again? Now, I read all of that because that's exactly what Hebrews is saying. That's exactly what our experience is as Christians. That it's not sunshine and lollipops. But in the midst of all of that, undergirding what the author of Hebrews is trying to say here in chapter 12 is the fact that God is not outside of these trials, but he holds us as his children through them. When trials come, what does Hebrews tell us to do? Well, in the first instance, understanding that those things are going to happen, these are the responses, and that God is in and through all of them. The first one is to gain perspective, which he gives us in verse 4, where he says, In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. Now, what he's conjuring up here is the image of not just the cross of Jesus, but also that of Gethsemane. What happened to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? He what? He was sweating blood. And why was he sweating blood? What was his prayer? If, this cup can pa if there's another way, but not my will, but thy will be done. That's a picture of faith, isn't it? And as Jesus prepared to take on God's wrath for our redemption, he sweated blood. And yet we've never got to that point. In fact, going back to verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 35, this is what the author tells us. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, wandering about in deserts and mountains. But the author of Hebrews is saying, get some perspective. You know, one of the things that I would often do when I was a student in Oxford is I would go visit where Latimer 
Ridley and Cranmer were burned. And I would go up into the North Tower and stand there exactly where Cranmer stood and look down on that site. And just amazing to think that these men shed their blood and burned for Jesus Christ and his covenant. And all the trials and tribulations, for the most part, that I experience in my life are mere inconveniences. When I think about what they went through, or the heroes from chapter 11 went through, and certainly what the Lord Jesus Christ himself went through. Now this doesn't mean that God makes light of our struggles, but that we have to have a view, we must view them in light of Jesus' suffering and the suffering of those who have gone before us. And so when I would visit those sites in Oxford, I would often pray, God help me when I complain about the trivialities of my own life when these men were burned here. Because God help me if I were to be brought before Queen Mary's men for trial. What would I have done? There's Cranmer standing on the North Tower watching Latimer and Ridley burned bravely and then taken back down to Christ Church where eventually he would capitulate before reaffirming his faith and going up into the flames? Would I have stood up to it all? The author of Hebrews says we need to gain perspective. Now some of you in this room have undergone real trial. Real trial. And so again, this is not to make light of it. Because what you've gone through may in fact be in this list here in Hebrews chapter 11. But for most of us, the author of Hebrews, certainly for those Hebrew Christians, he's saying you have to get perspective. You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And so remember that. Secondly, in verse 5, he says, think about it biblically. Because here in verses 5 and 6 about regarding lightly the discipline of the Lord nor being weary when reproved by him for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. He's quoting Proverbs 3 which is all about trusting in the Lord and not in our own wisdom. And so not only do we need to get perspective, he's saying we need a biblical perspective. We need to understand our, tri our trials in light of what the Bible has to say. Bishop Westcott of the Church of England in the 19th century said that whenever God speaks this way to us, he's addressing us in our particular situations. And in fact, this uh, word here in chapter 5, the exhortation that addresses you, that Greek word for addresses actually means dialogue. It means that the Bible is actually reasoning with us. God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, is trying to have a conversation with us about our trials. It's not just saying, here's the pill, take it, and things are going to get better, because the Bible's not a sedative. But actually, the Bible is trying to impart to us the wisdom of who God is and the reality of who we are. And so the Scripture reasons with us and what is it reasoning here? What it's reasoning is that behind every experience is the love of God as our Father. It's hard for us to grapple with, isn't it? 
that in even our trials and temptations, behind them are the love of God as our Father. That great hymn by William Cooper, um, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, His Wonders to Perform, uh, that he says, uh, behind the frown of providence, he hides his smiling face. Or is it cloud? Frown or cloud? It means the same thing. Behind each frown of providence, God hides his smiling face. And that's what the author is trying to reason with us through uh, Proverbs 3. That these trials don't undermine God's fatherhood, but affirm it. Which is why he says the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son or daughter whom he receives. And I don't know about you, but the worst part of my being a dad is having to chastise my children. I hate doing it. It's not something that I I love to do. In fact, there is a warning here in verse 10 for parents where it says, "For for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. It can also be uh, translated as for their pleasure. And what the author of Hebrews is actually warning us against is parents who take out their anger on their children and are actually not disciplining them from a godly perspective, but because something bad has happened at work or you're upset with something else, that you take it out on the kids. Now that's none of us. We never do that. But of course that's the difference between our fatherhood, our motherhood, with God's fatherhood and motherhood. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And we don't look forward to chastising our children, but we realize that when we do it, there's something greater in mind than their immediate happiness. That's why children are chastised. In fact, the author of Hebrews says that when they're not disciplined, when children are not disciplined, that's the sign of an absence of care. I mean, it's funny when I look back on my life and think about my own dad and the things that I think about are actually the absence of chastisement. Isn't that funny? I don't think about, oh, baseball games and things like... The things that really stick out to me is my dad never asked to see one of my report cards. Isn't that a funny thing? And so in reality, what I was recognizing is the lack of my father's chastisement toward me, which I needed after, uh, after a report card, because he didn't ask, he didn't chastise, which actually said to me that there was an absence of love in the situation. God the Father disciplines those he loves. And so when we go through trials, it's actually, it may be God disciplining us, God reasoning with us, God trying to get our attention. And then thirdly, we're to receive the trial meekly. Verse 9 says, uh, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? We receive the discipline with humility, with meekness. And there are two ways to handle a trial. We can either rebel and resist Or we can say like Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And very quickly, in the midst of all of these trials and temptations, we ask the question, why? Why God? 
And there are two ways to ask why. The first is this. Why is this happening to me? Because what we're assuming is that it would be okay if it happened to that guy but not me. Have you ever thought about that? Why is this happening to me? Because there are some people in my life who surely deserve what I'm going through. And so there's a self-centeredness to it. Asking why rooted in resentment and pride, which causes us to grow weary, which causes us to harden our hearts, which causes the root of bitterness to take hold of our hearts. And we ask, why does God do this? Why would God allow this to happen? And it's because we haven't allowed the word of God to address us so that we might think biblically about it. We've not allowed God's word to do its work on our hearts as Hebrews 11 is trying to reason with us by way of Proverbs 3. And so it brings Christians to the point of when we ask why, why is this happening to me? Why does God do this? Several years ago, I wrote Paul Walker and he said, how are things going? And I said, well, life stinks, so God must be working. I didn't, I I just sort of said it. And Paul wrote back and said, I'm using it in a sermon. I said, don't mention me. Don't say that that was me. But that's the truth of a Christian. Life is really hard. I'm going through a trial, but I know God is working through it. And I have to act in faith and trust in him. Because that's the second response. We can either respond that way or we can say, Father, I know that you are doing something to me through this. I'm not able to see it now. I am afraid, I'm confused, but still will I trust in you and act in faith as those men and women in Hebrews 11 shows us. And I'm going to view it positively and purposefully, which you can find in verses 10 and 11. And this is not projection, this is not the power of positive thinking from Norman Vincent Peale. I love what what Adelaide Stevenson said about Adelaide Stevenson said about reading Norman Vincent Peale, The Power of Positive Thinking. Stevenson said, I read Paul and found him appealing. I read Peale and found him appalling. But actually listen to what God says about our trial and tribulation. But he disciplines us for our good so that we might share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later... It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The trial makes you who you are. God uses it to fashion you more into his likeness. It doesn't mean that we're masochists and we go looking through it. But when you're going through trial, when you're going through temptation, respond in faith to a faithful Savior who is the finisher of our race. I said we were going to do questions, but it's too late. We'll do next week. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And do bring your questions, please. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.